You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are so excited to talk to Professor Amando Ibarra, an associate professor for the School of Workers at UW-Madison, to talk about an important and unique study he co-directed called Voices of Wisconsin Workers, a community-engaged study of essential workers during the pandemic. We've spent some time on the podcast talking in generalities about the impact of COVID-19 on the economy generally but we haven't really gotten into crucial questions of how the pandemic has impacted the financial lives of many individual workers, especially those deemed essential and who never stopped going to work in places where the virus was circulating. We are fortunate to be able to address some of these questions today with Professor Ibarra, who has been studying these issues throughout the pandemic. Professor Ibarra holds a BA in sociology and Spanish, a master's in public administration, and a PhD in political science from the University of California, Irving. Professor Ibarra's teaching and research fields of specialization are Chicano and Chicana working communities, adult education on issues of diversity in the workplace, international labor migration, leadership development, organizing workplaces, and applied research. We have so much to talk about today, so let's jump right in. Thank you so much for being with us today, Professor Ibarra. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So since this is your first time on the podcast, let's start broadly and talk about your start, if you will, in terms of your background and maybe getting into choosing majors and a career path. What set you on the path to being a sociology and Spanish major? I mean, there's an MA in public administration and onto a political science and PhD in, in political science, but maybe give us a brief overview of your academic and professional career path from undergrad to your current multiple roles in a variety of divisions at UW-Madison. Yes, of course. And, and uh, first of all, Edison, thank you for the invitation, Claire and Amy as well. Um, I'm really uh, excited to be here and to, and to be in conversation in, in this community where, where we're able to talk about you know, who we are and what we do as a profession at UW-Madison. Uh, my name is Armando Ibarra. I'm an associate professor in what's known as the School for Workers. I'm also the, the, the director of Chicano, Chicana, Chicanex, and Latino, Latina, Latinx studies at UW-Madison, where I, I teach uh, on social movements and Latinx communities uh, in, in, in different, um, different contexts. I, um, I, I grew up in a small farming community in Northern California. I, I belong to a, a farm worker family unit, which means that you know my parents, my mo- my mother and my father, who continue to be farm workers, and they're both in their late seventies now. They can they cannot retire because of, of the type of work that they do, um, and this informs why I chose the career path that I did as well. And I have uh, six sisters and one brother, and we survive by by working, um, you know, the seasons, the crop seasons in in Northern California. Everything from you know picking and harvesting um, different types of fruits and vegetables in July or in the summers to preparing crops in 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 the fall and winters. So our our whole existence was dictated by the crop season, 
you know, while I grew up, I grew up in a migrant farm worker labor camp. And then this labor camp is for other families like us, uh, many, well, the majority of the families were Mexican and Mexican-American families, uh, mixed status families, uh, meaning that there was, you know, a combination of, of immigrant and non-immigrant. And within the immigrants, um, there was a combination of different immigration statuses, everything from undocumented to naturalized citizens. So this was our community growing up, and this continues to be a, a, a center part of who I am here in Wisconsin. Um, I tell a lot of a lot of folks when I'm when I'm having these types of conversations that I see a lot of similarities in Wisconsin right now as as the same type of similarities and transformations that were taking place in the Central Valley of California in the 70s and 80s. Um, there's this cultural transformation rooted in a demographic shift um, that took place there that, that I see taking place here and quite frankly across the United States. So some folks would call this the Latinization or the browning of, of America. We call it um, just, you know, just people looking to get by and give their families a, a better life. Um, so this, this is my context of growing up. So my earliest memories as a child are picking um, prunes from the ground. So at the age of five, I, I joined the family work unit and really engaged in adult hard labor from that age up until I was in my early 20s. My last day of working in the fields was pruning um, kiwi fruit, kiwi fruit vines in October when I was a junior in college. So even uh, my, my days of working as a, as a field worker um, extended all the way from the age of five until my early twenties. Uh, so, so that type of labor is ingrained in, in both my person and in my politics. And so I chose um, sociology uh, and quite frankly, out of, out of, you know, having, out of wanting to learn more about society in, in terms of how it worked and why it is that some folks lived a certain way and were more privileged than, the, than others and why it was that the people that I worked alongside growing up looked like me um, and only like me. And, uh, and so those, those types of questions were always a part of, uh, of me growing up, even, even in our communities as well. Um, the conversations that we had around the dinner table were always conversations of migration, conversations of work, conversations of hardship. So I wanted to understand a larger context of what that meant. And that's why I ended up choosing sociology in Spanish as well, quite frankly, because, you know, I, I, as a Mexican American, we spoke a, a very working class Spanish, you know, to, to be able to communicate in the fields and to communicate in my America, you, you spoke a, 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 a Spanish that's, that's, that's been developed over generations in this context, right? So in Spanish, I wanted to learn more about my Mexican heritage. Um, I wanted to learn more about literature, about some of the writings that had been written in, uh, in the past. I was really intrigued by poetry at that stage. And so I engaged in a lot of um, revolutionary poets from the, from the 30s, 40s, and 50s as an undergrad. And um, in sociology, you know, one of the things that drew me to it was a mentor. I took my, an introductory to sociology class, and it was with uh, a professor, Homer Metcalf, 
who was a self-described Chicano from East LA of German roots, uh, which kind of, it, it just, it just drew me to him because I wanted to learn more about his story. And his story was also one of struggle and one of being a part of social movements. So I followed him through the program and I learned much from sociology. Um, and he opened my eyes to a whole world of learning, right? Uh, my, my, my time while at the university was spent in the library. And so bouncing from, from bookshelves to bookshelves. And also on the fourth floor of our library, there was this uh, media section where I got to watch all these cool like movies and documentaries that I never had access to as a youth or a child. So that, that was my, my experience in why I chose sociology in Spanish. When I, when I finished my undergrad, I, I was really involved in, in change and really wanting to be a part of some sort of social change organization. So I began to work with, to work with a union, a labor union. And I got involved uh, with a labor union in, in Sacramento, California, and worked as, a, as an intern or as a temp, temporary worker on the campaign that was called, the, the campaign was, was called Working But Poor. It was a coalition that, that, was, that was creating an organizing strategy to organize home health care workers. So I did that and I was engaged in that campaign. Um, and my responsibilities there were to, to bring the coalition partners together. So it was a lot of phone calls. It was a lot of follow-up. Uh, it was a lot of off-hour uh, work right? Because uh, labor organizing or any type of organizing really happens all the time. It's not a nine to five job. It's uh, when people are available. And so that's when you have to be available as well. So I did that. And from there, I transitioned in, into an organizing position with the Service Employees International Union, which I organized for and um, was trained. I am a trained organizer in the SCIU model. As a, as a young person and worked on various campaigns with um, including um, home health care in California. I, was, uh, I also worked on some um, nursing homes campaigns and a lot of political campaigns as well. So I did that for a while. I got a lot of experience and decided that it was time to go back and pursue uh, something that I was passionate about with higher education, right? At this point, I am a product of what's called Upward Bound, and it was, my, it was how I was able to get there. Um, so I went back to, to this program, Upward Bound, and I started working with them, right? I transitioned from the labor organizing stuff to um, now being a coordinator of working with students that were like me, you know, with those low-income backgrounds that, that really need a, a window or a bridge into higher education. So I did that, and while there, I thought, well, maybe I should get a, a master's since I'm here, and, and the university is going to help pay for it. And so I was really interested in politics and power at that point. And uh, coming from that labor organizing background, and when I went to um, undergrad in California, there was this anti-immigrant proposition that had really gained a lot of traction called Prop 187. Um, so those were my first introductions into like uh, the policy world. Wow, this is this can really be the way that 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 we categorize and and that we categorize human beings, right? Based on our notions of humanity and uh, 
And that was something that really hurt me quite a bit and angered me as a young person. And I took to the streets as a young person in protest of Prop 187, along with hundreds of thousands of other folks in California. Um, so I was interested in that whole policy world. And that's when I decided that an MPA would be a good entryway into this world, um, this public administration. So I did a master's in public administration that was a that was part of the political science department at my institution. You know, so I worked there for a few years and I did my master's and then I decided, well, if I'm, if I'm talking about higher education um, to all these young people, you know, maybe it's time to take a shot. So I applied to, to grad school and I got into several, several grad schools and in political science because I wanted to study power, you know? How is it that, that, that folks, groups have power and how is it that this power is exerted within our social structures, right? Uh, within our democracy or what we have defined as our democracy. So that was the reason that I, uh, that I chose political science. And I chose UC Irvine as a place where I would go not for any other reason than they fully funded me. <laughs> They offered me the opportunity to go to school and, and have some funding behind it. And also because it's a, it's a very good school. I mean, I got some of the best mentorship that I could have being who I am as a person that self-identifies self as a Chicano, as a Latino, as an immigrant, and as a person that's heavily concerned or involved with, um, with labor and pro-immigrant rights movements. So I went there. And I, and I engaged in the, in the coursework and with the faculty and with my community at the same time. I'm a practitioner of, of somebody who, who not only works at the university as a person that's a part of this, but I'm also a part of communities around there. So I engage in those communities and those communities to me are as important as well. Um, so I, I did this while I was at UC Irvine and um, I, I uh, I was part of my union there as well, and also worked on some campaigns, local campaigns in the area. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about political science to the point that I wanted to learn more and I wanted to challenge the field of political science. Um, I wanted to challenge it in the sense that um, I felt that there was a, a need and an opportunity to expand the way we talk about politics within our field. Um, and by that, I mean that, that I think that that qualitative research that centered voices of people, um, in my estimation, has as much power as any predicting uh, model that, that turns out either causations or relations um, be within these large data. So that was something that, that I took really with me when I decided to pursue um, my PhD. And again, let me, let me just add one other thing. Um, when I, I arrived at UC Irvine, I was introduced to what I consider one of the finest Chicana, Chicano, and Chicanx faculty in the country, who I try to model my work around. And so um, while at the end of my, of my studies, I became a researcher with this nonprofit organization called Accord. And I might get this wrong, but I'm gonna say it all anyways. It's called Orange County Communities Organized for Responsible Development. And this is an organization that was um, organizing working class communities. And in Orange County, if you don't know, uh, happen to know, that's where Disneyland is. And so Disneyland is just power, this, this power hub of the county there. 
and it's also a county that is uh, that a lot of wealth comes in and out of. But but there's it's also a county where there's uh, a lot of working but poor folks there as well. Um, so these these communities that are the working but poor folks are what Accord was organizing and continues to organize around um, some of the things that were a couple of the projects that I'll that I'll detail real quick is is one of them was a, a citizenship fair project where where they uh, Accord put on these these clinics that help thousands of, of resident aliens adjust uh, or at least prepare themselves to adjust to become U.S. citizens and thus becoming. Uh, full participants in the, in the electoral process in the states, okay? Um, you can be a part of, of politics, but you can only participate in electoral politics if you're a US citizen. Another project was really to challenge developers, um, big money developers with their developments and, and to assure that there was some social responsibility um, with, with those developments because in the end, what's what's one of the biggest factors that's making these possible are public dollars, right? And public giveaways. So that was one of the projects that I undertook while I was there. It was called, the report's called the rubber stamp process. And the rubber stamp process basically looked at, at, at money being invested in local politics in Santa Ana and in Anaheim, California, to determine if there was an undue influence of donations to politics from outside interests on the development that were happening. And we found that there, that there was. And so when I was finishing that up, that's where Madison comes into play, right? Um, and, and I was finishing it up and it was, it was a time to, to go out and get a job. You're done with your dissertation. Uh, you're supposed to go out, look for a, for a, for a tenure track position. And, uh, and, and, you know, for folks, that in that situation that, that kind of do the type of work that I do, there really isn't a traditional package job that kind of brings in um, applied research, action research, uh, and that community-based component, right? So I looked, uh, I, I applied for, for many jobs and I got a couple of offers. And one of those offers was from the School for Workers. And the, the school for workers, um, they brought me out to Madison. It was July, okay? It, it was it was a July 4th weekend. They came, brought me out, they interviewed me. And I called my partner and I told her, you know, this place is kind of cool. You know, there's lots of people in community outside. Um, maybe it would be something that, that we can, you know, that we can try out. So I committed to this job and I was finishing up that report and I flew in in January of 11. <laughs> <laughs> from Orange County, California, right? And so I had this little windbreaker, I mean, thin windbreaker, and I get off the plane and I walked outside and I was like, oh my, what is this? I had never experienced that type of weather, that type of cold. So that in itself also is a transition, right? It's not only a cultural transition, but it's also, you know, this these different political transitions, economic transitions, and uh, a climate transition as well. Um, and this is um, for somebody that's moving here for, for what's considered to be, quite frankly, uh, a privileged job, right? Um, now, if imagine the, the tens of thousands of, of immigrants that come here that don't have those types of privileges. That's why I continue to engage in the type of work that I engage in. We would love to start talking about the study that you helped direct that was published in February called Voices of Wisconsin, a community engaged study of essential workers during the pandemic. 
So by way of background, can you maybe share with us why this was such an important study and maybe your analysis of how the voices of essential workers might have been lost in mainstream media coverage? Yeah, it was important. It is important because it brings uh, worker voices into the policy world as to how COVID-19 is being dealt with in Wisconsin. Absent of, uh, of the discussions of, of the strategies to, to mitigate COVID-19 was worker voices. So when we were asked if we wanted to partner, we were asked, we were invited into this partnership by the Population Health Institute at UW and by the folks at DHS because, uh, because of this really huge gap that they knew they had, right? And it was something that, um, that we at School for Workers is that we have those relationships with, with working communities. We engaged in this study knowing that it was an in-time study, first of all, you know, it's in pandemic um, that we're carrying it out. So, so we're gonna be talking with folks that are current dealing with this crisis. And also with the, with the non-ability to be able to meet with folks face-to-face -face because of, of all the policies out there to try to reduce the spread of COVID-19. And so all of those in play, and it's an in-time study that, that we put together a methodology to best capture a centered narrative of Wisconsin worker voices in a qualitative manner. So we looked at, at various um, occupations within industries, essential workers, and um, began to put lists of coalition partners or partners in the community and workers that, that we know we had access or could get access through, through our partners. If you'll read the report, there's, there's quite a few quite a few uh, community groups, community organizations that we worked with because they have the voice of the people. And so in these relationships that we built with these community organizations over time gave us that access that, that they have because of the type of service and advocacy that they do in community. Um, and in this case with working people in essential industries, right, in essential jobs. So we, we did one-on-one -on -one interviews. We did focus group interview, focus groups as well. And we did some secondary data analysis um, that most folks do to right now with, to study COVID-19. At this point of the study, when we, when we uh, were going through it, there wasn't much in, in, uh, in, in the sense of, of data outbreaks, of data of COVID-19 outbreaks that was available to the general public. Um, the data that, that was being collected was being kept private for, for a variety of reasons of I still don't understand why. And so, so we knew all of this. We knew that, that through our partners that there was some, um, some real hardships that were taking place in certain industries. And we engaged in this, uh, created a methodology with the DHS, with, with the Public Health Institute at UW-Madison and carried it out. We began in November. We interviewed all the way through, through uh, December and January, and we finished the report, released it early February. The turnaround time from, from initial conversations to a final product um, that was going to influence the way that, that the state or state agencies or even um, employers were going to look at COVID-19 was really quick. I, I am really extremely proud of this work and that the impact that it's having, not just on public policy, 
but on people's lives. So we, we talked to um, healthcare workers, teachers, uh, migrant and seasonal farm workers, cannery workers, meat processing workers, um, folks in the building trades, and also looked at a subcategory of, of workers within some of these occupations who, who shared that they were undocumented, right? People that don't have proper immigration authorization and thus do not have proper work authorization, but are laboring as essential workers nonetheless and have been for generations. Um, so that is part of this report as well. Um, and so, as I, as I said, you know, when we looked at these different sectors, we did come up with, with a set of recommendations by sectors. Um, some of those are very technical, um, very technical recommendations that look at, at the way that production is being processed. But there's also some other more um, qualitative ways of thinking about COVID-19 and its spread not only within the work environment, but the way it gets out into communities. And we learn about this not as a top-down approach, but we learn from the voices of the workers that were a part of this study. And so for example, let me just give to you really quickly one of the highlights that we did for undocumented workers. And I think this is something that, that is, is important in the state of Wisconsin because often we, we don't humanize these workers that make our lives possible, right? And instead, in a state like ours, we actually try to pass policies to make these people, these communities' lives uh, more difficult. Uh, so for undocumented workers face particular challenges and risk at work and in their communities, many do not receive sick pay or even access to sick leave, are not entitled to unemployment benefits and lack health insurance. Even those who could receive health care at public expense may choose not to do so because of fear of reprisal under the new so-called public charge rule should they become eligible to adjust their status at a later date. This federal rule provides that after February 24, 2020, the United States um, Citizenship and Immigration Service will consider receipt of public benefits in deciding whether to adjust an individual's immigration status. That no longer holds true. That's been changed since then. Undocumented workers have managed in large part through private donations and support from nonprofit organizations. While helpful, this aid simply cannot meet the needs of the entire Wisconsin workforce otherwise not entitled to benefits. So this is the type of language that you'll find in the report, right? It's very straightforward, it's accessible, um, and, it's, um, and it's something that, 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 that we present on as often as we can. And it comes from undocumented essential workers themselves, which is quite important as well. You know, these are, these are the folks that usually aren't part of dialogues or aren't part of uh, decision-making circles on decisions that directly impact their lives. There's also a series of recommendations that, um, that we make, um, and I'm not gonna go through the full report. Um, you can go to the School for Workers a webpage and it's, it's directly on our webpage where you can download it. But these recommendations are really, you know, high level recommendations. Each one of them has a series of explanations that, that you can read at your own time. But I just wanna read the five recommendations that come from, from our study. One, engage and empower all stakeholders. 
basically bring worker voices into decisions that impact their lives directly, especially at, at, at work sites, um, provide consistent and clear health education. One of the things that we kept hearing and seeing from the interviews and focus groups is that messages that were being received from workers were, you know, were inconsistent. And sometimes they were even uh, contrary um, to what they were, were hearing in the public messaging, especially with those workers um, that were working, for example, in the canneries, in the meat processing plants, and as seasonal migrant and farm workers. If you read the report, you'll see some really horror stories that these folks shared that include death, right? illness, um, isolation, and exploitation, which is... Um, probably the ultimate form of dehumanizing that we have within our system of production. So we ensure adequate infection prevention and disease surveillance, um, provide benefits, compensation, and anti-retaliation protection, right? Oftentimes when folks got sick on the job um, and, and brought it to their supervisors, they would be disciplined, right? They would go back to work sick, and that's not good for public health on any level. Um, and ensure policies are responsive to unique sector and worker needs. Um, policies need to be able to adapt to the production needs of each industry and to the occupation needs of those workers as well. That all is, is outlined in the entire report that, that we've been using, it, using as a platform to talk about not just pandemic, in-pandemic needs of workers, but this pandemic really just uh, exposed a lot of, of the inconsistencies that, that workers face on the job. Post-pandemic, these, these recommendations still hold true for, for keeping um, workers safe. The conclusion is really straightforward as well, um, and I'm just going to read it. So essential workers are bearing a large burden of the pandemic, and existing policies and practices are clearly inadequate. This is a complex crisis, but collectively the knowledge, resources, and power exist to make changes necessary for all to work and thrive in safe, healthy, and respectful workplaces. These policy recommendations and continued input from frontline workers are crucial components of ensuring all Wisconsinites get through COVID-19 together. And that is, that is part of the conclusion in, in that report. So this, uh, this report has, I've used in my, my colleagues and, and my, my co-authors and co-investigators have, have presented on this report at various venues um, to, to policymakers, to elected officials, um, to, uh, to medical practitioners, right? So, so doctors, uh, nurses, folks that are in the medical field, students at the UW, students across the state, community at large, uh, been presented in both Spanish and English, and uh, and I think that's that's really important. And you know, it's it, this type of this type of research is called participatory action research, right? And participatory action research really is a way of engaging in in research with partners in a mutual benefiting way. The information or 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 the data that you're collecting and the findings is really something that's being done in collaboration with community. So community has as much say in what you're writing or what you put out there in, in terms of recommendations as, uh, as you do as the, the PI. 
So this work right here has been presented also to this group um, called the Essential Worker uh, Rights Network, which is a collection of immigrant Spanish-speaking mostly um, workers across the state of Wisconsin who wanted to learn more about policy and how policy is implemented. And I use this report as kind of like the case study of how we talk about policy and how we, how we connect workers' lives to research to policy, right? Um, so which worked out nicely for me in this situation. What specific public policy questions did the study address or what specific questions did you ask yourselves? So the questions are, are pretty straightforward as well with this type of uh, work that we did. And um, the questions are, you know, impacts of COVID-19 on essential workers, on especially the, the folks that we talked to in their specific occupations, responses by the, by the employers and um, how it impacted their personal lives outside of work as well. Um, so you're trying to get a, a real sense of how workers response to the responses of their employers to keep them safe, right? And, uh, and, and what's, um, what's missing in that response to try to create safe workplaces from the, from the workers' perspectives. For those workers that, that were impacted directly by COVID-19, how did that impact their lives directly, but also their lives of their families and their communities? what could be done to help offset the detrimental effects of COVID-19. And from those, you're, you're able to really assess current public policy, right? What's social distancing? Um, how does that play out in a work environment, right? If you're in a, a meat processing plant where you can't distance six feet, you know, if you're on a line where there's a, a team of six workers that have to work together, and if they're not provided adequate safety protections, what does that mean for their health and safety, right? If you're a teacher that's being, um, that's teaching face-to-face -face in classroom, what are the, the protocols that are keeping that person safe? And uh, how do you teach children to social distance? And also how do you protect teachers and, and workers, right? Because a teacher in the end is an employee, it's a worker. Um, how do you ensure that their health and safety is protected as well? You know, when you're, bringing, um, when you're bringing students into the classroom, because you're not just bringing students, you're bringing their families and their communities as well. Um, so those types of uh, public health questions really are able to, to condition public policy or at least inform public policy um, in ways of, of making some guidelines, at least guidelines, right, um, if not policies to to help at least not insure because you can't insure with COVID-19 much, to help ensure that you're taking the safety measures in the hopes of keeping workers safe and healthy. I know that you gave us an overview of what some of those policy and guideline recommendations are based on what you found in your study. Are those findings common across all sectors that you examined? I know you talked about undocumented workers specifically, but do those recommendations differ based on sectors like healthcare, K through 12 education, agriculture, food processing, et cetera? Yes. Yes. They, 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 uh, they're specific to, to occupation and to industry as well. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that, that you'll see, like, let's take, let's take migrant and seasonal farm workers that, that come to Wisconsin, right? It, at peak season to, to help prepare, um, our food for consumption, right? 
uh, or to help uh, prepare at least the food that's being put out on market for consumption. I guess that would be another way to put it, right? Uh, we found one case of, of outbreak in one cannery um, that employs um, mostly migrant and seasonal farm workers. So in this particular plant, and I won't give any identifiable information, uh, in this particular plant, you had, you had workers from, uh, from the Southwest, you had workers from the South, you had workers from Puerto Rico that were all recruited to come and work. And while they're recruited, they live on site at the plant. So they're living there, you know, as workers in, in, in housing units that are owned by the, by the company. And then for, for, for their leisure and for their personal needs on Sundays, they're able to go to the local town Walmart um, to buy whatever they need for the week. Well, they had an outbreak. And there was no way to control this outbreak because it, it, the outbreak took place at the job. And when we talk about, about you know, workers being able to go to supervisors and telling them, I'm sick, I have symptoms, you know, and you're in this ha high pace, uh, limited uh, time to be able to produce so much product, right? And so we had those tensions, right, between frontline supervisors and workers about you know workers being sick or feeling sick and, and not not miss it and uh, having to miss work to, to care for themselves. So this particular plant had outbreaks, uh, and from this outbreak resulted uh, deaths. Workers died on the job that we might not know about at this point because they're migrant and seasonal farm workers. And we had uh, uh, also spread on the plant, but also in the housing units, right? So they're taking it back and forth from the plant to the housing unit and eventually also into the community where, uh, where some of these workers that might be asymptomatic or symptomatic, quite honestly, are, are, are going to, um, to engage in their local, like, uh, or in their, in, in, in their daily interactions to, um, to buy whatever um, they need for the week, right? Whether it be, uh, you know, personal hygiene products or food. So we have all this mixing up. We have job, we have housing, and now we have the community at large. That's all being touched by this outbreak at the employment site that, um, that once they, they, that this employer finally um, was able to address the COVID-19 outbreak, it resulted in, in many of the workers um, being housed at a local motel, right? So you get them out, you put them in a motel, but, but when you have them in the motel, you have no medical supervision. So you have a lot of the folks that are going through the illness there and only when they become super ill are they transported to a medical facility. Um, one of the workers reported that they found them passed out, dying on the floor because, uh, because he had complications with his diabetes. And he said, yeah, I was left to die in the floor of the hotel room. We also, you know, when you hear about the, the trauma not just the actual way that the COVID-19 works its way through the body, but the trauma that's left on all these folks and on everybody in the area. The mental health aspect is something else that needs to be dealt with now as well. Um, the after effects or the in and after effects of COVID-19 are going to be impacting um, these workers uh, way beyond uh, once we get out of this pandemic. Absolutely. Does your research group 
have plans to follow up on this research as the impact of the pandemic continues to impact these workers? There's opportunity um, to follow up on this research. In the world of research, it's, uh, it's about resources, you know, being able to engage in research in an adequate way, you have to be well-resourced. So we're, we're out there right now looking for grants that will help us um, continue to work on, on COVID-19 and COVID-19 responses uh, by workers and communities. Right now, we received a grant from the Inequalities Competition, which is looking at ways of dealing with COVID-19 together. It's more of an applied research type of project where we're doing trainings with this essential workers network that I talked about earlier on health and safety, on rights, on ways of being able to have an effective voice on the job. So we have a, a, this, this, this essential worker network across the state that are taking these online courses uh, on, on these types of trainings based on the research that we've done and also based on expertise in, um, in, in, in work and safety um, issues as well from other folks. So right now I'm working with um, professors Carolina Sarmiento and Professor um, Rebel Sims um, as co-PIs on this project. And our community partner is Voces de la Frontera, an advocacy uh, and service organization, the largest Latinx advocacy and service organization in the state of Wisconsin with a presence in both rural and urban areas across the state. And through them, we're able to, to give these types of trainings, a curriculum that focuses on health and safety, leadership, and how to um, effectively be heard on the job. That's such important work that you're doing. And there's so much more that we could unpack there if we had more time today. And we'd love to have you come and talk more about some of that later as well. We're going to jump to the last question that we've been asking all of our guests in honor of kind of a long and sometimes dark year or year and a half we've had at this point. We've been asking everyone, what is one thing that makes you hopeful? Oh, thing. I think there's many things that make me hopeful, um, not just one particular thing. You know, I, I am hopeful that we're on a path um, as, a, as a society to deal with many of the social ills that have plagued us. And by that, I'm talking about dealing with, with, with the racism problem, you know, with homophobia, with xenophobia, and everything else that has been um, really an attack on our country's entire humanity. I'm hopeful when I see uh, open conversations and, and open challenges to power structures um, to change these ways, to change the way we think, to change the ways we act, and to change the way we interact with one another, that makes me really, really hopeful. There's, there's two things that I never thought would happen in my life, okay? One is that I would live in Wisconsin, okay? Because Wisconsin to me was a, a flyover state when it goes from coast to coast. And the second is that I would be rooted in Wisconsin, right? So, so Veronica and I have three children that are born in Madison, Wisconsin now, right? They're Wisconsinites, whether... No, nobody can take that away from us anymore. And so I'm hopeful that, that their generation, um, your generation, uh, will continue to push for social justice and environmental justice. 
because the way we leave this world to the next generation really is something that uh, will reflect on who we are today, right? I'm hopeful when I see not just youth, but youth in particular, take principled stances in community. So when I see, when I see folks out there taking principled stances, pushing back against power structures um, to create a better society for all, that gives me great hope. Well said. Thank you so much for your time today. We've loved having you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.